Good evening, Hope Church. It's good to be in the house of the Lord. Amen. Open up into Ephesians chapter 6. We've got some more Bible to study, as is our practice. We've been going through Paul's letter to the Ephesian church, and uh, we find ourselves in chapter 6 and verse 10 and onwards. The Christian life is many things, but it is at every point and at any point warfare. It is always in the process of, and every Christian is in an act, whether you realize it or not, of warfare. You are always a victim of an enemy that is against your soul, whether you've volunteered to be a part of this battle or not. The constant spiritual uh, uh, situation of every Christian is in the process of of warfare. Now Ephesians has told us many things about the church. It's the, the household and family of God. It's the, it's the New Testament temple of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's, the, it's, the, it's the, the place that the angels look on and see God's glory. It's, it's all sorts of things. But it is also at every point the army of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now this passage that we're going to look at tonight, Ephesians chapter 6, comes on the back of what could, if we were a little bit honest, could say has been a few more boring passages of Paul. Is anybody worldly and just carnal enough to just admit with me that spiritual warfare is a little bit more heart-racing exciting than obey your parents, love your wife, submit to your husband? I, I, I want to I confess that on your behalf because I don't think that, but I think that you thought that. And so I'm just putting that on the table so that you can feel fine with the reality that as we read Ephesians, it's, it's glorious, heavenly gospel theology and doctrine that, that at the base of all of it was this reality of union with Christ. This is a beautiful picture that if you're a new Christian, I hope you understand this. Union with Christ. Whatever you are by nature because of your sin, whatever you are by nature because of your acts and, 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 and childhood and ancestors and whatever else, whatever you are by nature, by faith in Jesus Christ, you are unified into him. And because he is righteous, God sees you as righteous, as one with him. Because Jesus was perfect, God sees you as perfect, one with him. Because Jesus is the perfect son, God sees you as his adopted child. Because Jesus has earned an eternity of glory, your inheritance is towards an eternity of glory. Because you're unified with Jesus in your, in your relationship and in your legal standing. That is the wonderful truth of Ephesians. And, and that was part of the glorious doctrinal reality of chapter 1, 2, and 3. And then chapter 4 took this, started with this language of a walk. A walk, Paul was saying. If this is our calling to Christ in union with him, as a walk that has to mark every Christian. It's the walk of obedience against sin. It's the walk of this and that. And we looked at so many different ways that Paul said to walk. That language kept on coming up. Chapter 4, chapter 5. And then at the end of chapter 5 and then into chapter 6, that walk necessitates that we are responsible, balanced, Christian, well-behaved Fathers and, and wives and husbands and mothers and children and workers and employees. And then today in Ephesians 6, as he gets into this, he starts rallying the troops for what is no less than true spiritual warfare. We need to realize <coughs> that the balanced Christian will be able to walk on both sides of the path. They will be able to keep their, their wheels on both sets of tracks. On one hand, we are in an army battle in warfare. On the other hand, we have ordinary ways to live that God holds us accountable for in our, in our married life, in our church life, and in our, in our employment. And so if we're imbalanced in that way, we will be... I've, I've got two pictures for us. One will be like 
the, 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 the tragic picture of the returned soldier that is crippled and at all times uh, 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 possessed by this PTSD. This, this post-traumatic stress syndrome and, and traumatic disorder so that whatever they do, wherever they are, their body has come back home from the Vietnamese War, but their mind is still trapped in it. Some of you have had the tragedy of knowing somebody like this. And, and, and because their mind is still, is still encapsulated in this traumatic shell shock experience, they can't enjoy a birthday party because a, a balloon will go off and Uncle Jimmy will just deck your, your, your Asian neighbor. He thinks he's back in the war. Or, 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 the, or the, 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 the sparklers start going off on the, on the cake, and he starts flipping the table and taking down the nearest guy because he's still there. Now, that is the always switched on, way too warfare-minded type Christian. Then there is the kind of mindset that we want to avoid, the imagery of somebody who is, who is a peace fighter who was a daisy chain, love bomb kind of person back in the 70s. And while they were marching for, for world peace, the government conscripted them and threw them on a plane and dropped them in Vietnam. And they try to walk up to the enemy line, holding out peace signs and a flower and a baked cake in order to show we're all people here, aren't we? And they get blown up immediately. Now, Christians can fall into those two errors and fall off onto the, the problems of both those sides. We are always so, uh, so obsessed and focused on spiritual warfare that there's a demon behind everything, your cough, your cold, the style of shoes you wore, your, your math teacher's name spelt backwards in Hebrews, and the barcode of the last shirt that you purchased actually spell, praise Satan, they're that kind of always PTSD type Christians, warfare, warfare, warfare. And then there are those who are, who are simply in the, in the post-enlightenment, often reformed, deeply theological side of Christianity that, that post themselves as, as Christ is one and we know our Bible and they stand there defenseless against the enemy. We need to hold them both together. We need to be able to go to work and just be the best workers. We need to go to our prayer closet and be the most dogmatic, vicious prayer warriors that the world has ever seen. We need both. In this passage, we're welcomed into the mindset of Paul that he wants Christians to share. Tonight, we're going to read verse 12 to 13. Future weeks, we're going to take a few weeks and, and unpack the armor of God that is available for every Christian. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. May God bless this word in our midst this evening. Amen. Paul calls us to be strengthened and armored because we are all in the battle. He said at the end of his life, Timothy, I fought the good fight and then he didn't apologize for using such militant language. He told Timothy... Wage a good warfare. There is no such thing as a faithful Christian who is a spiritual pacifist. The enemies of Christ need to come down. He said to Timothy, fight the good fight. There is an evil, worldly, carnal fight to fight, and we are to reject that and instead fight the good fight. Look at verse 10 and 11. Paul's language here is to every Christian, whereas the other passages have been towards the fathers and the, 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 
the, the, the people who lived out of home and didn't have kids, they got a break that week. It was to the children, and the parents got a bit of a break in that section. It was to the wives, and the husbands got to relax. And it was to the husbands, and the wives got to relax. But this passage does not start with two you militant-type Christians, or two you who like a fight. He starts rather, finally, back to everybody. He starts using generalized language again. This passage about being in a warfare and under the attack of the devil is not written to pastors. He's not merely writing to the pastors saying, you're the generals, you're the preachers, you, ought, you, you, you administer the sacraments, you're the ones the devil is fighting. Rather, he's, he is speaking here of this warfare, which is in fact universal for every single Christian. The devil does not, does not fight like a gentleman. He mocks at the idea of, of, of peace treaties and warfare laws and human rights kind of ideas. The devil does not wage war like a gentleman. He abuses every soul he gets his hand on and enslaves them in the masses. Every single person that stands by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ also stands under the military banner of the Lord Jesus Christ and you are a target of the enemy. Now some of you may say, well, well, I don't know. I've been, I've been a Christian two months. I got baptized not long ago. I, I don't know much. I mean, I, surely I'm not his target. But even ISIS tries and bombs and kills and slaughters children on live TV. You think the devil has, has more gentlemen about him than them? You might say, well, I'm, a, I'm an old Christian. I'm an aged Christian. My, my, tough, my, my strong years are behind me. I'm, I'm in the twilight of life. I'm, I'm cruising now until my funeral. They'll preach Jesus then and I'll go to heaven. But even Al-Qaeda bombs old people's homes. The devil is no more of a gentleman. Or we may think, I'm a, I'm a wounded Christian. I'm, I'm, I'm in, the, in the throes of sin in my life. I'm still recovering. I've been victimized. I've had 1,200 things go wrong against me systemically, personally, spiritually, family, in every way. I'm a wounded Christian. ISIS bombs hospitals, and the devil cares even less. If you're wounded, he delights to make you bleed more. The devil does not fight like a gentleman, and we must never expect him to do so. This warfare is against and towards every single Christian that there is in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, look at the, look at the enemy of this warfare. At the end of verse 11, we're told that we're standing against the schemes of the devil, of the enemy, of the diabolos, meaning the, the accuser, of the great serpent from the beginning, of the great dragon from Revelation. This is the enemy of the church that we are fighting against. Look at what he says. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. What he doesn't say is that we are all, is that, is that our enemy is a disordered mass of general demons. What he doesn't say is, what he does say is that our battling is not against flesh and blood, but of course, I'm going to disagree with him just to agree with him all the more. I know it's dangerous. I'm disagreeing with the way it's been worded in the English. I'm not disagreeing with the apostle, okay? He says, we don't fight against flesh and blood, and that's not true. We do fight against flesh and blood. How many Christians are there? Maybe you got this prophecy and you think this is your ministry. It's not. You can repent and figure things out later. None of our ministries is going to be to zipped out, be zipped out of our body and fight for Jesus in the, in the, in the, in the spiritual plane for the kingdom of, of light. That's none of our calling. All of us, even our praying, 
our preaching, our fighting sin, our speaking the truth, it's always done in the flesh, just not according to the flesh. But here Paul is saying that though we are against enemies and, and forces that are in the flesh, they are people, they are, they are schools of thought, they are religions, yet they're never merely flesh and blood. We're never wrestling merely against mere flesh and blood. He recognizes that it may be the proponent of another religion, but it's always something beyond them and behind them, spiritual warfare. He says he knows that it may be politicians, senators, emperors, or, 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 or ruling poli uh, 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 police that are arresting Paul, but he recognizes behind them and beyond them is the puppet master, the devil and his hordes. He may, we may recognize that it is certain individuals that try to persecute us, your boss that is making life difficult. It's, it's the neighbor that is, that is making your life hard. It's the, the spouse or the family member that is not, not allowing you to sleep. It, it may be something that you can look at and say, I know where the problem lies, but you don't know where the problem lies if you don't know that it is beyond them and above them and finding its root. If the attack is against the church, then the root of the problem is ultimately the attacking of the devil and all of his hordes. It is always more than just the, 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 the flesh and blood people. Look at, look at Acts chapter 19. The book of Ephesians was written to which city? There we go. I, I appreciate the swift answer. That, says, that is correct, Ephesus. It's the city of Ephesus that Paul went to. I think this was God's favorite mission field. I can argue that elsewhere, but we have so much content in the New Testament focusing in on the ministry of Paul in Ephesus, that it becomes for us a case study like no other for what good quality spiritual warfare is like. In Acts chapter 19, I hope you're there, we see this, this mindset that Paul is trying to communicate to us uh, uh, in the flesh, uh, play out in reality. Paul knows that come, but they are all ultimately more than flesh and blood. When Paul first arrived in Ephesus, he starts preaching in the synagogue, verse 8, and the Jews start getting stubborn and disbelieving, and they argue and speak evil against him, and he knows this is more than just Nathaniel and Methuselah and, and Barak. It is more than just the people. It is more than just the elders of the synagogue. This is ultimately spiritual opposition to the greatest spiritual weapon that has ever been forged from heaven, which is the gospel proclaimed by ministers and Christians. Paul was there in Ephesus, waging war against darkness. He expected this opposition from the Jews. He got it, and he knew that it was coming from ultimately beyond them. Or we then see that he goes and starts preaching in uh, uh, the hall of Tyrannus, and look at what verse 10 says. This continued, his preaching, continued for two years so that the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Paul knew in his preaching, as by God's grace, he reached every city and province in the whole of the nation of Asia Minor. When that was happening, he knew that the great things to overcome was not mainly space, was not mainly territories, was not mainly roads, and was not mainly the, the airwaves going through the, through the space into people's ears. That was not ultimately what had to be left over. What had to be overcome was the spiritual defenses, the ideologues, the, the, the belief systems, and those things which kept people enslaved by their beliefs. And so he labored, and by God's grace, the whole of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Now, if it's not enough for us to know that the Christians should know that gospel ministry is the purest form of spiritual warfare, let me say that again, all right? 
essential oil, tongue-speaking, exercising type Christians, the purest form of spiritual warfare is pure gospel ministry. Paul didn't just know that, the demons knew that. Because as soon as this revival starts breaking out in Ephesus, there's also all kinds of spiritual extreme situations that are happening. We see it in verse 11. God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that touched his skin were carried away to the sick. Anybody want this? A sick sick uh, family member, you want to you wanna try this? It was extraordinary. These things that did not usually happen in the life of the church were just, were just exploding out of the ministry of Paul in Ephesus. God was doing these extraordinary things, but the kingdom of darkness was striking back. It says to us in verse 13 and downwards, there was these Jewish men, non, not Christians, Jewish men who had a bit of a hustle going, a bit of a business, and their job was to exercise demons out of oppressed and possessed people. Some of us may not know this. That was actually somewhat of an industry going on in the first, in the first few centuries around the time of the Lord Jesus. This was, this was common. They would, they would come up with all sorts of uh, teas to drink and oils to use and chants to say and books to read and prayers to pray. And if you do them right, then maybe the demon will leave. And, and, and they had this, uh, you know, this, uh, this, this wage that would be given to them because of, their, because of their exorcism. Now, this would take weeks, days, months. And then they hear there's a dude who wipes his sweat while preaching, hands it to a deacon, and the handkerchief can go and heal people and cast out demons, they get pretty interested. This is money-making time for these Jewish exorcists. And so they, they obviously must have started doing this at some point, and then they get to, and they just start using Jesus' name. Because if you've had friends or had experience in the New Age world, you know that even the mention of Jesus can send certain beings and entities running. Well, well there are hierarchies in the demonic realm, and eventually they, they, these seven sons of Sceva come up against a man who has a demon, obviously of a, a bit more steel and a bit more authority than the last ones they've been dealing with. Because they say to him, in the name of Jesus, that Paul preaches about, we adjure you to leave. And the demon calmly says back to them, Jesus I know. Oh, I know Jesus. Paul I'm aware of. He's making quite a mess around here, my translation. Paul I know, I've heard of, but who are you? Now, I think we read what happens next with a G, maybe PG-rated lens on. Here's what it says. The man inspired by these demons beats the seven men up, declothes them naked, and then all we know is that they run out of the house bleeding. He assaulted them in some pretty demonic satanic ways. That's all we'll have to say. I don't know exactly how, but they did it. And then we're told in the passage that the news of this, verse 17, became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. This was a, a spiritual warfare kind of city that was going on around Paul. And if that doesn't get crazy enough, then the guys who were, uh, the Christians, who were all still doing their black magic... They, they didn't realize that was wrong. Maybe some of them knew it was sin. They were still doing their tarot cards and, and praying to angels and visiting the temple and doing their black magic. And, and then when this happens with the sons of Sceva, they come up to Pastor Paul and say, we repent, we confess, we don't want to get stripped naked and assaulted behind closed doors by demons. That's a great idea and an awesome application. 
And so they bring all of their books, and it's millions of dollars worth of books, and, and then after that, they burn them all, and as this revival is going on, the, the Demetrius the silversmith, the next little passage in, in Acts chapter 19, starts a riot. He gets all of the tradesmen and the metal workers, and they unionize, and they form a riot, and they, they barricade and have a mostly peaceful protest outside of parliament, and they yell and they scream and say, praise be to Artemis, Paul's trying to take away all her glory, and there's no one left to worship her because they're all getting converted. What an awesome, awesome complaint. They do that, and Paul still at this point has the audacity later on to write, we're not wrestling against the silversmiths. It's not against the, the guys that are beating up all of these Jewish exorcists and leading, leading them, leaving them naked and bloody. It's, it's not against the Jews that are opposing us. It's not ultimately against the, the political powers that will kick us out. This is all ultimately, at every point, the attack of the demonic realm and Satan's war against the church of Jesus Christ. Satan hates nothing more than the church of Jesus Christ because Ephesians 3 told us that the church of Jesus Christ is the shining, brilliant display of the glory of Jesus Christ. He hates it. He hates every Bible preaching, gospel proclaiming, sanctifying, word of God extolling church of Jesus Christ. He despises this church and every church we will ever plant. He despises that you are here tonight unless he is able to dull your ears enough that you can tick off your religious box and go home. He hates that you are here tonight because you will hear the extolling and proclaiming of Jesus Christ, the only God, become man, died for our sins, resurrected, ascended to the throne of God, who right now pours out grace and forgiveness to anybody of religious, sinful background to become right with God. God, one of God's people, and implanted into his church. That's the message that Satan hates above every single thing else. And that is why Romans 16 verse 20, Paul says to that church, God of peace, the peace-loving God, the God of peace will soon crush Satan's head under your feet. The church that preaches the gospel and proclaims the word is the boot on the foot of Jesus that is smushing out the brains of the devil onto this whole earth that Jesus purchased by his blood for himself. The Christian life is warfare. Jesus is a man of war leading us into battle. And Paul warns us, there is an enemy worse than any prime minister, president, emperor, king, Religious opponent, traveling atheist, lecturer, and author, worse than any of these, there is a spiritual enemy against us all. But look at what he says. He calls them rulers in verse, uh, I'm still in Acts 19, go back to Ephesians 6. In verse 12, he, call, 12, he calls them rulers, authority, authorities, cosmic powers of this present darkness, and spiritual forces of evil. What he's telling us is that there is hierarchies and structures in the demonic realm. Now, we know this is true of the angelic realm because there's such a thing as worshiping angels, as archangels, as messenger angels, etc., etc. Now, now, we don't know all of the intricate bylaws and polity of the political realm of the angels, much less the demons, but it is clear in Ephesians 6 here that there is some kind of structure there is some kind of foot soldier level demonic realm and, and, and the authorities and the powers that there is multiple realms of the hierarchy of the demonic world. 
And he even uses this phrase here, the cosmic powers. It could otherwise be translated, the world rulers. The reason I say that is because in the ancient world, in Paul's day, both Jews and Greeks believed that the political realm was one of the favorite realms of the fallen deities to interweave their plans with. They knew that grand things and plans on a grand scale that encapsulated millions of lives could be done if they took control of the political realms and agendas. Have you ever met this Christian? I've lost count of how many Christians I've chatted to, and they'll say, Pastor Tom, get this. And I was watching YouTube, always a terrible place to start. Never start your story with your pastor. So I was watching this guy on YouTube. And and sometimes it's something harmless and, and great. I was looking into some COVID vaccine stuff. Cool. I know where it's going. And then he said something about the moon landing. And then there was a, and then there was a, and then I watched a video, and then this one came on, and he was shooting from a, from a cave, obviously. And then there was a, and eventually 20 minutes down the track, and he goes, now did you know, therefore, the guy on the video told me, that there are demonic embedded powers within the left leftist green and labor uh, uh, parliaments in our nation at the moment and there is an offshore takeover currently underway where the demons are getting worshipped by blood-sucking pedophiles yada 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 and my only response to them is not I tell that would happen that's an idiotic response not in this world oh goodness no no my response is you needed a dude on YouTube with an alfoil hat to tell you that Paul told us, cosmic powers that rule the dark world. Now, now I can't confirm or deny what, uh, what stories out there are true and are false. I've not been given that information. But I've been told this. Every single force that is ungodly and anti-Christ is using up its authority and power, embedded in every system, at every realm, including politics, in order to try and bring about the death of the church, the dishonor of Jesus Christ, and the ending of the gospel. Here's the problem. Christians think that the attack of the devil and the leftist agenda is against family and freedom and and right-wing conservatives. Maybe, but not at all enough, not at all central. You've missed it. Every single thing that is anti-God is in fact trying to bring down the church. It's the church that is central to God's purpose. It is the church through which all of God's purposes will be achieved. It is the church where Jesus is setting up his rule and reign on earth to take over this globe for his glory. It's the church. Everything that the devil does is ultimately to try one by one to take down Christians in order to take down the church. Get your spiritual warfare rightly positioned. And there is preparation that is possible for this battle. He's told us this is all of us. All of us need to be strong in the strength of God's might. He's told us the enemy that we are currently facing, this this disembodied, counterfeit, lying, uh, unidentifiable, invisible spirit being called the devil and all of his hordes. But he does tell us that there is preparation that can be made by the Christian in this warfare. Look what he says in verse 10. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God. If that makes it, that's God helping me out. If not, get behind me, say. He says, be strong. Now, now in the Greek, that's that's like a passive, active type command. 
He's not saying be strong. In the Greek, he's saying you be strengthened, which is not to say that you have the strength. He is to say that God has the strength. It's the Lord's strength, but it is completely, immediately available to you. Your job is to actively avail yourself to the power that is being offered. You be strengthened by God. Don't sit around and wait for God to give you some vision or calling or strengthening. You actively pursue the being strengthened by God by actively putting on the whole armor of God. Now, in the next few weeks, we will be asking the question, what does it look like to put on the breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth, the sword of the spirit, etc.? At the moment, I can at least tell you what it's not. Being strong in the strength and the might of the Lord, being ready for the battle is not the same thing as knowing about the battle. There is many people in the church today, and I will even say this as a pastor of a Reformed, theologically sound church, that it is especially the Reformed, theologically sound churches that that attract these types of people, it is the kind of guy who, let's, let's go back to Afghanistan, the American-Australian uh, forces over here, the, the Afghan insurgents over there, and we're in this desert, and, and, a, and an Australian, let's pick an Australian, in nothing but his jocks and thongs. And he jumps up, and he runs across the sand, and he stands there in front of the Afghanis, and he says, I know, I know the political structures, motivations, and evils of your government. I know that the the bullets that are in your guns, by the rifling effect of the barrel of those guns, send out those bullets at such a velocity and rate that they are able to hold their precision and speed over large, uh, large spaces and hit with accuracy. But the Australian armory is that of Kevlar interwoven fabrics of such tight fiber, backed up by both ceramic and metallic plates within our guards, so that as the bullet strikes, the force is dissipated, the bullet is disintegrated, and the soldier remains firm. And some Afghani teenager shoots him in the chest with a pistol because he's wearing nothing. That's a theological theobro. He knows all his stuff. He can tell you precisely and exactly what's going wrong with the world and how God's laws need to inform government. And he can tell you what he'd do as a king. And he can tell you what he'd do if he was pastor. And she'll let you know what she thinks the answers to all of the world are at the moment. And yet, knowing everything, they know not the one important thing, which is how to turn that knowledge into actual armory into actually how to put on the armor of the Lord Jesus Christ. So my warning to you, as we go through this sermon and in the next weeks throughout the armory, do not ask yourself, how can I argue with my Pentecostal friend about what the armor of God is? Don't ask yourself, how can I sound impressive the next time we have a Bible study in Ephesians 6? Don't ask yourself, how would this look as a really cool tattoo on me from Ephesians 6? Ask yourself, Lord God, how am I unclothed and unarmored before the enemy in this universal, unfair, uh, uh, unlawful, illegal warfare that is always being waged against the church? How am I letting my people down? That's a question to ask. Or there's people that have, we have, we have uh, perfected the art of distraction. Not, not that we master the art of distracting the enemy. The enemy masters the art of distracting us all the while we think we are doing tremendously. I could hand out tracts to everybody on my street because that would be good. And I have so many co-workers that aren't believers and they don't even know I'm a Christian. 
and, and I should probably stop looking at what I'm looking at online and, and stop watching smut on the, in the movies and probably I should, I should stop looking at those other people on social media with envy or, or with lust and, and I'm sure that being a regular church attender would be good, however... I just haven't nailed down that infralapsarian, superlapsarian debate. You know what I mean? And, and I haven't argued with the Presbyterian in a long while, and I should probably get doing that. And my mum's still only a four-point Calvinist. Heaven knows if she's going to heaven. And by goodness, if, if I don't get down all of the, this eschatological in, uh, 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 debate, then, then what, what good will I be for the kingdom? And what the armor, putting on the armor of God is not, is just thinking lots about the armor of God. But first, setting in your mind the reality that you are in a warfare that you never chose to be a part of, except for the fact that Jesus calls you to himself and he's a king in war. You may not have asked to be an attack a victim of the devil. You may not have asked to be this. You may have, you may have wanted or even been sold a bill of goods about Christianity being peace and, and fine and happy roses and daisies until you get to heaven, and it's just not the truth. The good news is that Jesus is with you, and that those that he has died to procure, and that those who he shed his blood to save, he will not let the devil overpower and cause him to lose. You cannot be lost. In Jesus Christ, you cannot be lost. But the devil doesn't need you to be lost. He needs you to be distracted. He doesn't even need you dead. He needs you to be distracted. And there's this reality that we see here in this passage. As Paul says here, as he's, he's speaking to the whole, of the, uh, the whole of the church. And yet look at verse 12. He says, we do not wrestle. Maybe your version says struggle. That's actually not warfare language. That's martial arts wrestling language that he's picked up from, from the Olympic Games and the Corinthian Games and whatnot in his own day. So the reality is that for the, for the Christian, our battle is cosmic because it's cosmic battle, cosmic because we've got a cosmic king, cosmic because there's cosmic powers arrayed against us. It's big and it's large like that, and it's corporal. It's corporal because it involves all of us in the same army. The Romans had this, uh, had this formation named after the tortoise because the Roman soldiers, if they were in defense mode or trying to move through an enemy's force and line, they would have all of the men at the front interlock their large shields together so that they had a wall in front. They would have men put the shields over the top of them so that they had a roof to protect them from projectiles, arrows, and javelins. And they had men on the sides to do the same thing. It looked like a moving, marching, giant tortoise towards the enemy. And they would simply open it for a moment, throw through their javelins, blades, and bows, and slowly march over the corpses of their enemy. And in the church, we are like that formation. Think of Acts chapter 19. After these individual Christians all came forward and divulged their practices and repented of their sins, then God sent another wave of revival that added many into the church. The principle that we see in the New Testament, even hinted throughout the Old Testament, is that the purity of the individual contributes to the purity of the corporate, and it is the corporate people of God that have much of the blessings of God in mission. In other words, your sin is never private. It's not just between you and your girlfriend. It's not just between you and your internet browser. It's not just between you and your wife 
or in your husband, or you and your child, or you and your schoolmate, or you and the person you're arguing with at church. It's never merely between you. Because if you are giving this foothold to the devil, if you are tolerating sin, your shield is down, you are not now the only person able to be vulnerable to the enemy's javelins and swords. So are the brothers and sisters around you. And when you fall, everyone behind you will have to fall back into formation or be themselves struck because of your fall. So, so the, the battle that we are fighting is a corporate, church-wide, body-wide, army-style battle that we need one another. We need to watch each other's back. It's never just a little bit of prayerlessness. It matters to the church. It's never just a little bit of cheating on your taxes and finances. Somebody's not getting saved because of your sin. How, how, how heavy it is to think of it this way. Somebody is still sick because I'm not confessing my sin. Somebody's child is still far off and, and, and not coming back to Jesus because I am still mistreating my wife. A revival is being held back because we are largely tolerating sin, so would say Leonard Ravenhill. <clears throat> almost forgot his name. So in that sense... Our battle is cosmic and body-wide. Let me also say this, that because of the language of this word wrestle in verse 12, our battle is also deeply personal and individual. I had a mate one time who had served time in the English military, and he had been a, a shooter and a sniper, and that was he liked that. He said he had lost some sleep because of the sorts of things he'd seen down his scope. That's valid. He said, but it was what gave him the PTSD and had to de-roll from the military, and what actually ended up informing his move to another country to try and start mentally fresh was the fact that one time, having picked off enemies and having had established systems and defenses from afar as a sniper, they'd sent in an infiltrator who came up the bell tower steps and wrestled him, and he had to beat the man to death, stab him in his chest, and watched him drown in his own blood before his hands. Now, I'm sorry for the imagery. I lost some sleep the night that I heard it as well. He said there is something infinitely different between far-off warfare and face-to-face, man-to-man combat. And Paul uses this word wrestle. It's like somebody's gotten through the defenses. It's good to have statement of faith and, and standards for our lyrics in songs that we worship through and, 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 and elders that are checked in their theology and their godliness and membership structures so that we are safe. All of those defenses are good and godly, but every now and then the devil will send somebody in, something in, so that we are doing man-to-man, bloody, hand-to-hand combat. It's you and your computer late at night, and you have to kill that sin with your bare hands. You don't have a friend with you. You don't have anywhere to be. It's you and your sin. It's when you're alone with somebody that you're tempted to sin with, and it's killing your sin in the most bloody and gory way. Yes, our warfare is all of us together, but so often our together warfare is weakened by the lack of individual personal, spiritual warfare in private. Both matter immensely to the conquest of the gospel in the land of the Lord Jesus Christ. The largest and greatest area of Satan's attack is those things which pertain to the Great Commission. The greatest area of Satan's attack and all of his hordes against churches pertain to those areas of the Great Commission. He wants to discourage the church so that she becomes cowardly. 
She wants to neuter the church so that she's always moving away from a militant kind of mindset and becoming a safe space and a, and a hospital. She want, the devil wants to distract the church from the word of God. He wants to infect the church with sin away from holiness. He wants to busy the church with all sorts of other ministries to do other than prayerfulness. He wants to tempt the church with, with reputation among other people instead of faithfulness to the Lord Jesus Christ. He wants to do anything he can to, to slow the church's advance and commitment to and engagement in the Great Commission. Each of us need to take this personally, individually, going before God and saying, before we get into the rest of the passage, Lord God, where am I the chink in this church's armor? Where am I laying down my shield to indulge in sin? Where am I the weakened one in the evil day? We'll speak about that word and then we'll close out. Paul says, so that you may be strengthened in the evil day, verse 13. So that you may withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand firm. Now, we ask the question, what is the evil day? What is the evil day? And some people will say, well, that's the, the, the end times apostasy that brings attack against the church and then Jesus' swift victory. Maybe. That's a pretty evil day. Maybe it's every single day because Paul literally said in Ephesians 5 verse 16, redeem the day because they're all evil. Or some people say, no, the evil day is any day. This is my position. The evil day is any day in the calendar any day for each one of us at different times, any day when the devil slightly or intensely increases his attack, distraction, and temptation against the Christian or against the church. It could be a theological sway and drift in a local church. It could be a wolf coming into the pulpit and, and abusing and giving the people false doctrine and false gospel. It could be a tempter coming into the, into the church or a temptress and, and bringing sexual sin in like we see in Revelation. It could, be, it could be a political opponent that starts to massacre and push against or try and close down the church's doors. We don't know. It could be anything. It could be everything, but it is any day. Meaning our readiness must always be at fever pitch. Because it could be any day, it could be tonight that you get home, that you commit the worst sin ever, and cause many other Christians to lose their hope in the local church and your walk and what you said and your evangelism. It could be tomorrow that something comes against you and you are not ready for the kind of trial it is going to be for your faith. I don't know what it is or when it is, except that it could be anything and it could be any day. The evil day is upon us all and every single one of us needs to avail ourselves to what God has presented mindfully and plentifully in the Lord Jesus Christ by resisting the devil, resisting temptation, coming to the Lord Jesus in submission. I'm just quoting James 4 verse 7 and 8. Coming to the Lord Jesus in submission and trusting that he will give to us all that we need in the day of battle. Of course, if you are not a Christian, none of the protecting grace of the Lord Jesus applies to you. So that not only are you still totally vulnerable to the attacks of the demons and totally vulnerable to the attacks of the devil himself should he want you, but you are also completely vulnerable and exposed to the wrath of God that stands against you because of your sin. And that's your even biggest problem. That's your biggest problem. 
What Jesus Christ did is not merely come down and beat the devil. He did not merely come down and protect you from demons. He came down and in his death and in his resurrection, he died to save us from the wrath of God. He came to save us from the hell we deserve because of our sin. He came to cleanse us from our guilty state so that we could be children of God. That's the ultimate truth of the gospel. That's the most important thing you need is forgiveness, is cleansing, is grace from God. And he gives it richly in the Lord Jesus to whoever will lay down their own sin and trust in Christ. Call on Christ. Lean on Christ to save you and forgive you. And with salvation, protection from the enemy, the devil, and all of his hordes. Let's pray. God, our tendency is to hear things from the word of God and amen them, and agree with them, and like it, and even appreciate the burn a little bit, and go away, and find any way we can to do anything we can other than what you have commanded us to do. In this very moment, every single one of us, no matter how fresh we are to the faith, no matter how, 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 how much of a veteran we are around the walk with the Lord Jesus Christ, every one of us knows at least one thing that we can go home and commit to prayer and fix up in our life this week in order to more rightly honor and fight in the battle for the Lord Jesus Christ. Every one of us knows something we can do, but every one of us will have some temptation to be distracted and, and do anything else. Father God, please make us earnest. Protect us from distraction. Protect us from reputation seeking. Protect us from, from enjoying theological quibbles instead of seeking and saving those that are lost. Lord God, please do what only you can do and protect us by your own authority and shield against the attacks of the devil. We know they will come, but will you enable us to be standing firm in that evil day to the glory of Jesus Christ? Please strengthen us, Lord God. Equip us and send us into mission for this week to come. And I pray, Lord God, that anyone in our midst who does not know Jesus, who is still vulnerable to the devil's attacks entirely, and who is still standing before you without a savior, would you please give to them faith to trust in Jesus, to rest in him, to be rescued and saved, and then become one of us. Father God, we pray all of this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our, our divine warrior and king, our master and savior, our fighter, our Lord and savior, Jesus Christ. And everybody said, amen. amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.